Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. I want to talk about a couple of articles that were written about me that both came out yesterday. One of them was in Market Watch. It was a very prominent story on their website. It even got picked up by the New York Post this morning. And the other one was an article that was in the New Republic. Now, the New Republic article that was written by a guy named Danny Vinnick, I never actually spoke to Danny Vinnick, so he just wrote this article on his own. But the the Market Watch article, and Nora uh, Mohadova, I believe is how to pronounce her name, I spoke with her at length, so I actually spoke to her, and she wrote the article based on our conversation, or at least she wants people to believe it was based on our conversation. But, you know, what reporters often do is they don't write what you say, but they write what they want you to say, or they twist your words, or they take something out of context, because what they really want is they want to prove their own agenda. And so they can do that by erecting a straw man to tear down instead of your actual argument. Now, in the case of the New Republic article, the guy's not twisting my words because he didn't talk to me, but he is quoting selectively from an article that he read in Reason that I wrote, and he is taking pieces of it and basically using one section to prove the point that I wasn't even making. And if he actually used the evidence I was suggesting the way I suggested it, it actually proves my point. It doesn't refute it. So he selectively quotes and then puts his own spin on it. But let me first talk about the, um, the article with the reporter, uh, Enora, who I actually talked to. And after I read her article, and of course it's not all bad, right? But after I read her article and I told her the things she got wrong, the only thing she was willing to change was my title, which she said I was a hedge fund manager, uh, which I wasn't. But the other things I pointed out where she had misquoted me or had misrepresented my view, she basically refuses to change it. She says, well, you said this. And even if she believes I said what she thinks she's writing, I didn't mean that. I don't think I said what she is reporting. But even if I gave her the false impression, once I correct that false impression, why wouldn't she fix her article? I mean, her article is online. It's not like it's in print. It's in a, uh, you know, it's in a newspaper that just came out, and now they have to print a retraction. It was easy for her to change my title. She could easily tweak this article with a few words here and there to make it accurate. But accuracy is not what she wants. She deliberately wants to misrepresent what I said to try to discredit me, which is really the purpose I believe, of her article is to basically say people shouldn't listen to me because I, I'm wrong. I may have been right once, but I'm wrong now. That's the basic point of the article. And she starts out by giving me credit, and at least she gave me some credit, for forecasting the, the housing bubble and the financial crisis. 
But she basically says that, well, that forecast was right, but this one, so far at least, has been wrong. And things that he's said would happen are wrong. Now, first of all, you have to realize that I've made a lot of forecasts since the 2008 financial crisis. She's focusing on one of them, which is the dollar, right, and what I thought would happen to the dollar. And I do think the dollar is going to have a crisis and a substantial decline. And that hasn't happened yet, right? Although I have been forecasting a lower dollar for a long time, long before 2008. In fact, when I first began making public forecasts of the dollar, it was a lot higher than it is today. So even after the recent rally, the dollar is still substantially lower, not only against other fiat currencies, but against gold, which is the real barometer of the dollar's value, the, the dollar is much lower against gold and other currencies now than it was when I first started advising people to get out of the dollar and predicting that it would fall. So the fact that it has risen in this short time span doesn't prove that I'm wrong. And of course, if the dollar ultimately does collapse uh, in a few years, I wasn't wrong about that either. You know, I just didn't know exactly how long it, could it would take. You see, the when she's quoting people in this article that are refuting what I'm saying and saying that it's nonsense, she doesn't realize that the same guys were saying what I was saying was nonsense in 2005 and 2006 and 2007 about the housing bubble and the financial crisis we were going to have when it popped. Right? And I was wrong about that crisis for years until it finally happened. Well, I wasn't wrong. I just didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. I just saw the problem early. And it took a while before everybody else saw what I saw early. The same thing is going to happen with the dollar and other predictions that I've made, like the uh, $5,000 gold or a, 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 a sovereign debt crisis, a collapse of the bond market. These are all big picture forecasts that I've made that have yet to come true. But by the time they come true, I mean, that's the game over, right? It's too late to do anything. You can't prepare for it. That's the end game. When the dollar crashes, we have a sovereign debt crisis. That's it. The party's over. Right? So the, the point of my forecasts is to help people do the right thing before you know, it hits the fan. But I would say that if you go back and you look at all the forecasting that I've done since 2008, 2009, and compare that to what you know, mainstream economists have said what happened over the years. I have made so many accurate forecasts uh, to say that, well, don't listen to me because I'm a one-trick pony. I got one thing right, but I've got everything else wrong. I've got a lot more right than I've gotten wrong. And I still believe that what I've gotten wrong, it's not a question of being wrong. It's just a question of being early when it comes to those big picture things. Because you could have said the same thing about me, and people did say the same thing about me, uh, as housing prices kept going up, they kept saying that that proved that was wrong. Well, the rally in the dollar today no more proves that I was wrong than the rally in real estate prices in 2006 proved I was wrong, even though I said that there was a bubble and real estate prices would collapse. But let me go to some specifics of the article where she got me wrong. Here's a quote from me. It's, all, it, it's in quotes. Gold prices will go ballistic once people realize that the dollar is overvalued. And that's in quotes. And then she said, Schiff said, forecasting the value of the currency will fall by 90%. Now, two things. When I said the dollar could fall, I didn't say it will fall by 90%. I said it could. 
I said it could. I said I think the dollar is going to go down at least 50 percent. That would be accurate. But I said it could go down 70, 80, 90 percent. It all depends on what the Fed does. I have no way of knowing for sure how the Fed is going to react to this currency crisis. Will they try to put it out or will they, you know, add fuel to the fire? But why is she choosing to focus in on the 90 percent to try to discredit me by having a forecast that she can say is so wild? I'm, I'm forecasting a 90% decline. No, I'm not. But, of course, if it is a 90% decline, it's going to be against gold, right, which would mean gold goes up by a factor of 10, right, which would be much higher than 5,000. Because I believe that if the dollar were to go down 90% of its value, that the euro and the yen would also go down a lot. See, what she's implying in the rest of the article is that I'm saying the dollar will go down 90% versus other fiat currencies. That's not what I told her. I'm talking about 90% versus gold, but again, that is kind of a worst-case scenario, or not worst-case scenario, because I told her that a decline of 90% is not hyperinflation. I said hyperinflation would mean the dollar goes down 99% or 99.9%, right? So I specifically told her that even if the dollar fell by 90%, I wouldn't consider that to be hyperinflation. It would just be really serious inflation, right, but not hyperinflation, and I told her that I don't think that we will have hyperinflation because I do believe that it's likely that the Federal Reserve will do the right thing and not allow hyperinflation to happen. Now, it may not. We may have hyperinflation, but I don't know that we're going to have it for sure. But she you know, then gets other people to comment on the article by saying, well, Schiff is wrong because hyperinflation is very unlikely. Well, I told her that hyperinflation was unlikely. So I have the same a belief with respect to hyperinflation as the guy who's supposedly criticizing me. I think it's unlikely, but I don't think it's impossible, right? I just say it's improbable given how bad it would be. Maybe cooler heads will prevail before it happens. But I recognize that it is a possibility, even if it's not a probability. But I do believe we're going to have very high inflation. But rather than have somebody attack me, she just said, well, Peter Schiff says there's going to be hyperinflation. No, I don't. That's a worst-case possibility that I still don't think will happen. And the thing is, even if the reporter somehow misunderstood what I said, which I, I, I think I speak pretty clearly, although sometimes I can get emotional and carried away, but I, I usually, you know, I'm, I'm careful with my words. But even if she was under that impression when she wrote her article, she's not under the impression now when I correct her, yet she refuses to correct it. Why? If you know the truth, if you know you quoted somebody inaccurately or you're not expressing their actual belief or, or what they wanted to tell you, and it's supposedly an interview, why wouldn't you fix it? I mean, she fixed my title. She had no problem fixing my title. She could have fixed, you know, I gave her a couple of words she could have put in there to clarify what I was saying. But again, it would undermine the real purpose of the article was to discredit me. And so by exaggerating some of the things that I said or claiming I said certain things that I didn't say, uh, she could try to make it appear, uh, you know, that, that I'm wrong or don't listen to me because he just got lucky. He's a one-trick pony, a stop clock. And, of course, now what? If, if the dollar loses half of its value against the euro, I'm wrong because it didn't go down by 90%, right? No, of course. But she wants to go to an extreme in order to prove a point. And that is generally what all reporters are trying to do when they interview me. Instead of trying to really, you know, uh, credit me for anything, you know, it's like kind of like a backhanded compliment. Oh, yes, you know, the man who called the last stock crash is already blaming the Fed for the next. Even the title is misleading 
because I am not calling for a stock market crash. And not once did I tell her I thought the stock market was going to crash. Yet, if you read her title, the man who called the last stock crash is already blaming the Fed for the next. I'm not calling a stock crash. What I told her, and I tell everybody the same thing, so this isn't new. I told her that the stock market would crash if the Fed actually followed through with its promise to NQE and raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. Then the market would crash. But I told her I don't think it's going to crash because I don't think the Fed is going to follow through. I think we're going to get QE4. I think we're going to get more money printing, which she did write about. She writes in there that I'm predicting QE4. Well, if I'm predicting QE4, I don't think the stock market's going to crash because I don't think the Fed is going to wait for a stock market crash before enacting QE4. I think they're going to preempt the crash by acting QE4 in advance. So even the headline is misleading. Right. But this is this is what happens when you talk to reporters. But of course, I have to talk to them because I want to get the word out, even if it's distorted. Right. Some people might read between the lines or see what she wrote and go to my website or listen to me and might actually get the truth. Maybe some people will hear this podcast who read the article. I mean, maybe the people who are listening to it can make some comments. Uh, you can go and go on Market Watch or The New York Post and say, hey, listen to Peter Schiff's podcast. Find out what he really told the reporter, right? Don't just read what the reporter writes and claims, oh, that's what Peter Schiff said. No, listen to what Peter Schiff says himself, right? Because that's what I believe, not, not what somebody else says I believe, right? If somebody puts words in my mouth and then says, well, Peter Schiff said this and he's wrong. No, go and get the words right from the horse's mouth, right from the source, which you can do with my podcast. And fortunately, my record is not going to be written uh, in the the, uh, the 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 pub articles in in the, in the news stories about me because I put out my own content I write my own stuff I say my own stuff so it really doesn't matter what a reporter wants to put in print because that's not my record my record is what I put in print myself right what I say myself which is why again you want to listen to these podcasts read what I write on my Europac website, because then you know. Because if you just go to the Main Street Media, you have no idea. You have no idea what the person who's being quoted actually said, which is why I never believe it. When I read an article that quotes somebody, I just take it with a grain of salt, because I have no idea what that person said. Just because a reporter puts quotations around it doesn't mean it was said, right? Now, what would be a good idea, and some reporters do this, they write an article about me, and they send it to me before they publish it. They say, hey, did I get anything wrong here? Am I misquoting you? Are I taking you out of context? When they do that, that's great. That's great because then I can correct anything and make sure it's all right. But most reporters don't do that, and in fact, even after you tell them that it's wrong, a lot of them still don't want to change what they wrote, even if it's easy, even if it's just online. But let me look at this other article. Um, in the New Republic. And, and this one, again, I didn't talk to this guy. And the, the title here is Inflation Paranoia Will Never Die, No Matter What the Evidence Says. Right? Um, and, of course, what is the evidence that Danny Vinnick is pointing to? He's pointing to the CPI, right? And he's saying, oh, so no matter what the CPI says, people like Peter Schiff will never lose their pan paranoia. Right? I have this irrational fear of inflation, and no matter what the evidence says, I'm still going to think there's inflation, even though there's no inflation. Right? And he's pointing to an article uh, where um, I'm you know, talking about one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why 
we're not seeing more inflation. And of course, there are others. It's not just the problems with the CPI and the reporting. I talk a lot about how America exports this inflation. We print money, we send it abroad, our trading partners take our paper, and they send us real goods. So that keeps a lid on domestic prices. And so if we didn't have the reserve currency, if we couldn't run these huge trade deficits financed by a printing press, uh, we would have much higher prices domestically than we do now. So that's one of the factors that is temporarily restraining consumer prices. But eventually, when the flows reverse and the dollars come crashing back to an Amer American shores like, you know, like, a, like a tidal wave, uh, we're going to have a lot of inflation catch up, right? So that's going to happen. But I am also arguing, and this is the only you know, point that this guy is making, I'm also arguing that um, the CPI is not accurately measuring inflation, right? And one of the ways I did that was I compared the CPI to the price of a McDonald's hamburger. The, there's an index out there that tracks the price of a McDonald's hamburger. And the only reason I used it is not because I'm saying, hey, the hamburger should be what you use to, to, to measure inflation rather than the CPI. That's not what I said. What I wrote, and this was the strange, the observation, is I pointed out that for a long time, if you looked at a graph of the Big Mac and the CPI as the government reported it, the two moved in lockstep. It was pretty much like a one-to-one -one correlation. So for a long period of time, the price of a Big Mac pretty much mirrored the overall inflation rate in the economy. So my point was, I guess the price of a Big Mac, all of the various things that go into it, are pretty good benchmark for the whole economy. Because for so long, uh, you could pretty much know what the CPI was if you knew the price of a Big Mac, right? If you knew how much a Big Mac went up, you knew how much the CPI went up. And then I pointed out that something strange happened. Uh, I think, I forget the year, was it 2002 or 2004? But all of a sudden, there was a divergent. And now, the price of a Big Mac is rising two and a half, three times, maybe, as fast as the CPI. And my, my question that I posed in this article was, why? Why is that? What has changed where they were so highly correlated for a long time, and now they're not correlated at all? And so I said, well, two things could explain this. One is McDonald's is nowhere near as efficient as they used to be, right? They somehow uh, are operating on a lower efficient level, and so they have to raise prices faster than other businesses that are still as efficient as they used to be. So something happened at McDonald's, and, and now they're forced to raise their prices faster than everybody else, right? That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that McDonald's hasn't changed. It's the same Big Mac, and they're just as efficient in making them and selling them as they used to be, but the government has changed the way it measures prices. And because it's changed the way it measures prices, prices are no longer officially rising as high, as, as fast as the Big Mac. And so I said, what's, you know, what's more likely? Who do you want to believe, the hamburger or the government? And my conclusion was it made more sense that it was the government that changed and not McDonald's. That McDonald's is making hamburgers just the way it used to, it always has. It's just that the inflation rate is still accurately reflected in the price of a Big Mac, but it's not being accurately reflected in the CPI. That was my point. But when this guy writes about it, he doesn't once mention that fact. 
He simply says, I'm pointing to the price of a Big Mac and saying that's a better representation of inflation than the CPI. And so he attacks that by saying, no, that's ridiculous. You can't just take one item and say this is the CPI. But that's not what I did. That's not the point that I brought it up. But, of course, this reporter right, selectively out of context takes one argument of many and then doesn't even advance it the way I did. Right? He takes what I said about the Big Mac and says, well, Peter Schiff thinks that we should base our inflation on the cost of a hamburger and forget about all the other things. No, I'm just saying, wait a minute. Why is it that that hamburger was going up by the same percent as all the other prices for so long? And what changed so that that relationship no longer holds? And I know what changed because the government doesn't even lie about it. They changed the way they calculate inflation. And why did they make that change? Because they said that it was overstating, that the old method was overstating inflation and they were going to fix it. So the minute they fixed it, right, now the inflation numbers that they officially report are much lower. That's why the price of a Big Mac is rising so much faster than the official measures of inflation, because we're no longer measuring it the same way. Now, I would argue that the way the government used to measure inflation is more accurate than the way they measure it now. And if they still measured it back when there was a one-to-one -one correlation, the way they did when there was a one-to-one -one correlation with the Big Mac, then we would have a much higher rate of inflation, and it wouldn't be my paranoia, right? People would say, whoa, I guess there actually is inflation. It, you know, Peter Schiff isn't just imagining it or hallucinating it. He's not afraid of a ghost. There actually is inflation. And, of course, that inflation would be a lot higher if it weren't for our ability to export it, if it weren't for the, the confidence that the world has in the Fed and, it, and the belief that everybody has that the Fed is in control of this situation, that it has an exit strategy, that it's out of the QE business, that it's going to raise interest rates, right? When people realize that we're not going to do that, right, that we're going to print more money, that we're going to print more money than Europe and Japan combined, well, then it's a game changer. Then we're going to have to eat all that inflation because when the dollar starts to crash, and I still believe that we will get at least a 50% decline in the value of the dollar, right? Maybe it'll be 90%. And if it is 90%, it'll probably be measured in gold, not necessarily measured in euros or yen, which will also be racing to the bottom. And so those currencies will be losing value too against gold, not just the dollar. But I do think the dollar will be, lose a lot more value uh, than most other fiat currencies, including the euro and maybe even the yen, right? Although the yen is, is, is weaker currently, but I think we still could win the, the currency race to the bottom. And right when, in, in, in the first, going back to that first Market Watch article, they do show a, a chart, right, of the U.S. dollar index, but it only goes back to January, showing, oh, it was at 80, and now it's at 87, so Peter Schiff is wrong. But why don't they go back to 2002 when the dollar index was 120? And I said it was going to 80, right? And so it did go. And in fact, it went down to 71.72. So yes, it is up. 87.5 is higher than 80, but it's lower than 120. And that's where the dollar index is when I first publicly started to say that it was going to go down. And also, again, you know, she focuses on the stock market in charts to try to prove that I'm wrong because I'm calling for a stock market crash when I'm not even calling for a stock market crash. I even told her 
that I don't think the stock market will crash. In fact, the stock market was headed down. What reversed it? What caused the stock market to turn on a dime? It was Bullard coming out and hinting that we might do QE4. That proves my point, that the stock market is only going up because of the Fed. And because I believe the Fed is going to print all this money, I don't believe the stock market is going to crash. See, if I believe the stock market is going to crash, would I be telling my clients to buy stocks? Would I be telling my clients to invest in stocks? Of course not. Wouldn't I be telling my clients to short stocks if I thought a crash was coming? But I'm not telling any of my clients to short stocks. Why am I not telling my clients to short stocks? Because I don't think a crash is coming. That's what I told this reporter. But her article is about the stock market crash that I say is happening. And then, of course, they want to say that because they can show the stock market going up to say, see, he's been calling for a stock market crash and it hasn't crashed. I haven't been calling for a stock market crash. I have been calling for a dollar crash. It hasn't crashed yet, but I think it will. It's a lot lower than it was when I first started telling people it was going to go down. But has it completely collapsed yet? No. Has, it gone, has the dollar index gone to 40 yet? No. I think it's going to go to 40. I still think so. And it could go a lot lower. It might not. I don't know that for sure. I hope it doesn't. I hope the cooler heads prevail and that the Fed recognizes its mistakes in time and turns the Titanic before we hit that iceberg. Right? I hope that we do that, but I don't know. But again, these articles are written to discredit me. They're written in a way uh, to misrepresent what I say, to make it sound totally outrageous, and to put it in a context to make me look as, long, as wrong as possible. Why? You know, here you have a guy who did forecast a lot of things that happened that nobody else forecast. Why would you just want to go out of your way to discredit me? Because what if I'm right this time, right? What people should say, hey, what, you know, shouldn't we listen to Peter Schiff? Why don't they talk about all these guys, like these experts they want to interview that are criticizing me? What were they saying in 2005 and 2006 and 2007? How about the fact that, hey, these guys got it wrong before? They were wrong, so why should we think they're right now? Instead of saying, hey, Peter Schiff is right, was right then, but here's why we think he should be wrong now. See, that doesn't make any sense. It should be, hey, he was right before, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt, so maybe he's right again, right? And say, hey, these other experts were totally wrong before, so maybe they're wrong now. See, that makes more sense to me, that the guy that got it right before still has it right, and the people that got it completely wrong, they're still wrong. Because the people who got it wrong, right, and who were criticizing me for the things that I was saying and how impossible it was, they didn't understand the problem back then. That's why they think the Fed solved it, because they never understood the problem in the first place. So if they don't, if they don't understand the problem, how do you expect them to understand the solution? They're just as fooled now. You see, I understood the problem, which is why I know the Fed didn't solve it. The Fed made the problem worse. The only question is, how long will it take for everybody else to figure it out? Because they all figured it out in a way when the bubble burst in 2008. When this bigger bubble is going to burst, there's no way to know for sure. But the only thing I know is if you're not prepared, right, you'll be decimated by the consequences. So my, earning, my warnings are early because the only way I can warn is early. Because if the warning, warning is late, it's worthless. And even if you're years early, it's better than being days late. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. 
They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.